Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Ina Brown is with me today. She's probably best known to many of you for really capturing the zeitgeist of Nero while editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Before moving to New York, she was the editor of Tatler in London, and she went on to co-found both Talk Magazine uh, as well as The Daily Beast. She's also a well-known uh, commentator and author, uh, including the famous Diana Chronicles. And her most recent book is The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, and The Truth and the Turmoil. It was published earlier this year, fittingly, by Crown Publishing. Um, the Washington Post has called it addictively readable, and uh, I've just finished the book myself, and I can attest to that. She joins today thanks to the efforts of our mutual friend and my colleague, Kathleen Lacey. Uh, so, Tina, thank you for joining, and uh, it's good to see you. you again. Happy to be here, Kevin. Well, we're going to talk a lot about uh, your book and uh, the institution of the monarchy, but I can't help today but start with uh, a, a perhaps a more um, damaged institution at the moment, and that is what's going on uh, at Downing Street. Um, Liz Truss, the prime minister, has been called before the head of the 1922 committee. We've obviously seen uh, a few cabinet resignations, um, uh, and most significantly, of course, the ascension of Jeremy Hunt to chancellor, um, and I would say effectively shadow prime minister at the at the moment. But I, I have to ask what your what your take is on the uh, on the situation um, uh, emerging in London right now. Well, I just got back from London, and of course, you can almost hear the crashing masonry of the Tory party. And in many ways, I mean, it is the sort of uh, inevitable unraveling that started, of course, in 2016 with the Brexit referendum. We've had, you know, four prime ministers since, uh, and an increasing kind of fantasy uh, narrative that they all live in uh, about Brexit having been a great idea and, the whole party is still really at war with itself. So, I mean, it's it's a, a a very scary situation actually right now, and rather painful to watch. Uh, Liz Truss, who should never have been uh, put into this position, completely unqualified to be in it, literally being sort of dismembered in front of us. It's it's quite a unique uh, uh, moment in 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 England. And, and, and it seems, you know, this notion of trying to promise your population Northern European standards of social welfare at American levels of taxation was just never going to uh, never going to get anywhere, ultimately. No, well, it never had any base except in a kind of very small wing of, of, of the at the Tory party. The interesting and amusing thing, if it, although it's horrific, <laughs> is, you know, my book is the subline of my book, The Palace Papers, is Can the Monarchy Survive? Right. Well, actually, it's it's not the monarchy that's having a nervous breakdown. Um, you know, it's 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 the government. And uh, who would have thought it? You know, this is why um, history is so interesting. Uh, that in fact, so, the reverse happened. Right, precisely. So, you know, this gets us to the big subject of uh, of your of your book, of course, which is this this nexus of the monarchy, the institution of the monarchy government and politics in the United Kingdom and and society writ large. And so I want to get to the book before. But before I do, I have to ask you, you know, and for, for those who are unfamiliar with the book, the book basically chronicles the era between the death of Princess Diana 
uh, and the death of, uh, of, of Prince Philip last year. And we all remember the sort of iconic photos um, of the Queen at St. George's Chapel at Windsor, sitting alone, observing the, the, uh, the COVID protocols, while the very night before, Boris Johnson um, was partying at Downing Street with his, uh, with his colleagues, and that was one of the, uh, one of the elements that ultimately led to, uh, to, his, uh, to his downfall. But um, I want to ask you about what's happened since the, uh, the end of the, uh, of, the, of the book. So on September the 8th, at the age of 96, and after 70 years as monarch, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II did pass, pass away at Balmoral. And I know you arrived in London uh, in time for the funeral, and you were commentating for American television. Um, but what did you find when you arrived uh, in, in London uh, after, in that extraordinary week? Well. I you know, I, I actually had thought that the reaction might be more hysterical than it was. The reaction, in fact, was almost as if the last act of the Queen, who has always been so impeccable herself, was to kind of um, excite from her nation a completely appropriate and beautiful uh, sort of response to her death. I mean, we saw the five-mile queue, uh, which became in itself a kind of iconic thing, the queue in, 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 in caps, uh, stretching, you know, mile after mile as, as her people of every age, uh, uh, you know, ethnicity, uh, class. I mean, it was an extraordinary display of sort of national unity, people waiting 12, 13, 15 hours to file past her, 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 the catafalque, which had her coffin on it. It was, it was remarkable. And of course, the Queen herself, I mean, I had learned when I was in all, there in August in Scotland, the Queen had actually said to uh, members of her, uh, of her Privy Council that she hoped that she would die in Scotland because that's where she wanted to, to, to go, uh, in her most private estate at Balmoral, in a place where she felt it was really her happy place, where she'd been used to go with Philip and the family. And of course, in dying in Scotland, it was really her last act of soft power because the union is once again in jeopardy. It was the Queen's, frankly, private uh, sort of the notion of, of, of losing Scotland from the union with another referendum was something that she cared enormously about, though she would never speak about it publicly, uh, except to make one very cryptic comment when she said in the last referendum, people should think carefully before doing this. Um, and you know, in, in dying there, of course, it meant that the whole of that first period was focused on Scotland, and it made the Scots feel they were at the heart of the Union instead of uh, the periphery of the Union. You know, you saw this extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, progress of, of the coffin through the countryside of Scotland and lying in state at St. Giles Cathedral, and so everything began in Scotland, the Scottish Union flag over her coffin. It was a very, very moving thing. And, and Nicola Sturgeon, um, actually, who's someone I know very well, and you know, I, I actually admire enormously. She, she, you know, she is a firebrand, and she does want Scottish independence. But there was there's Nicola Sturgeon, who's been, you know, has is always been the firebrand for independence. She's always said she wanted to keep the British monarchy. But there she was in a black, you know, big black sort of society woman's hat, you know, reading, reading uh, from the lessons in in church. Uh, Somehow, you know, and, and reinforcing to everybody, you know, we want to keep the monarch as head of state. So it was a remarkable thing the Queen sort of managed to pull off in her extraordinary, impeccable way. And indeed, um, on this point of, uh, of whether Scotland, if it, uh, if it were to gain independence, uh, could, could potentially 
maintain the monarch as head of state uh, is obviously not unprecedented um, in the history of uh, the island of Great Britain. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I think that nobody has suggested losing. And of course, as as the British <clears throat> parliamentary uh, system just seems to be in riot, um, it kind of makes the point that you know the, the solidity uh, and the uh, you know, traditional, um, uh, uh, you know, historical uh, uh, sort of, you know, the, the way that the monarchy is is such a kind of stable institution, essentially. It's made the point. I mean, we want to keep that, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the message. Well, I've oftentimes wondered in, uh, in, in recent years, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this as well, um, and, and that, you know, there's always been this question, uh, if you were going to do away with a monarchy, would you replace it with with what? Um, and, you know, one of the great benefits of having this, this figure that sort of rises above politics and is a constant and is always there, when you've got the shenanigans of, say, a Boris Johnson or you have a highly polarized situation, there, that, that, you know, that society and the body politic can always look to this, this constant. And he, even here in the United States, um, we sometimes have to call into question whether having head of state and head of government united in one position is always uh, always for the best, because head of state is what's going to be putting forward your, you know, that's your face to the world, um, uh, in, in a sense. And, and, well, and clearly a lot of that has been undermined in recent years. Yeah, well, there is certainly no, no political figure who could have brought out the crowds that the Queen did during her jubilee in June of this year. There just is no one else. And it was interesting, actually, that the only person booed in that entire three days of the Jubilee was actually <clears throat> Boris Johnson. Even Harry and Meghan, you know, who are not the most popular figures in the monarchy, they were not booed. But Boris Johnson was booed. So that kind of really made that point. I mean, there is something of value, obviously, in having the monarchy as, uh, you know, over, <clears throat> over mighty politicians. You know, they, they are, because they can bring out a fervor, essentially, that is, patriotic without being nationalistic. And that is a huge difference. I mean, you know, when you saw that remarkable procession that was so moving and so deep and rich in tradition and, you know, the, 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 the incredible uh, regiments of, of, of these various, uh, uh, you know, military units that, that were celebrating or rather memorializing the Queen, you know, it was not a martial display, you know. I mean, it was yeah. a, a display of, of history, of tradition, of um, patriotic moments and symbols that really brought everybody together, whatever their politics or persuasion. That's a very hard thing to do uh, for anybody who's, uh, you know, part of the sort of political, um, uh, uh, you know, round who's elected. So I want to go back to something you said um, early on when you said you arrived in in London uh, in time for the Queen's state and royal funerals. Um, that you perhaps were even expecting a little bit more hysteria. And I want to go back to something you wrote in the, in the book. You go back to 2002, at the time of the death of the Queen Mother. Um, and obviously, the, uh, the Queen's sister had died earlier that year, Princess Margaret. The monarchy was still suffering from the kind of the hangover of the Diana years. And you write about that there was this concern uh, at the time of the funeral of the Queen Mother about whether anybody would kind of show up. Uh, and then obviously, you have the contrast of nobody had really anticipated just how out of control the Diana situation was going to get when, when, when she passed away in the week leading into that funeral. Now, obviously, there was never any concern that nobody would show up for the Queen's funeral, but was there ever any concern or was there a surprise on your part or the palace's part that, 
that actually there was enough, um, I don't know what you want to call it, grief doesn't seem quite the right word, but there was something going on to sustain that many days of people going through Westminster Hall to see her, the lining in the streets, the, 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 the sort of, I mean, from our perspective here in the United States, it appeared that the country had virtually shut down for that, for that week. Yeah, well, I mean, it was really a valedictory, not only to the Queen herself, um, but to her whole ethos and, st and, and, and way, and, and way of, of serving her country. I, I think that the great uh, sort of uh, desire to wait that long, I mean, who waits? I mean, even David Beckham, you know, for goodness sake, waited 13 hours in the queue like everybody else. And indeed, jumping the queue for, with sort of VIP status was so frowned on that the two of the um, British uh, talk show hosts uh, were, were accused of jumping the queue. And they were sort of, they, they dealt for a week with like people, you know, tweeting hideous things about them the entire week. So yeah, I mean, it was, uh, that part of it was uh, a, a remarkable development. And it, but it really, and it really was about, I mean, in some ways, I mean, the queen was, she behaved so well. I mean, in 70 years, I was actually on a discussion in London about times when people could think of the Queen having made a mistake or got it wrong. There was a ransacking of the memory to try to think of any time that the Queen had had, had got it wrong, had, except for uh, the time during Diana's death. But aside from that period, she really uh, never erred from her duty. And that is such a kind of remarkable thing in terms of today's short-term gratification, desire to express self. I mean, the, we still don't know really what the Queen thought about anything. And I think we're going to really miss not knowing what she thought. Everybody wants to air their opinions. Everybody wants to, to thinks that they have something to say of interest. You know, the Queen took the long view always, and actually it worked for her, you know. Uh, not telling us uh, what she thought, because it meant that people with her inscrutableness could somehow really project their feelings on her. And the self-discipline of observing that for seven decades was something that people truly, you know, they respected and mourned its passing. It was a sense of like, what are we today? Can, can any of us do this today? And so people wanted to say thank you to her, actually. They really did. Again and again, that was what the people in the line said. Well, she served us, you know, impeccably, you know, for 70 years. It's the least we can do, is what they kept saying, is to be here for her and wait. I thought it was a wonderful, a wonderful tribute, really. Absolutely. And in fact, the day after her death, you, uh, you wrote an op-ed in, in the New York Times, which read in part, she lived long enough to kiss off her 14th Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and welcome her 15th to form Her Majesty's government. So from Winston Churchill to Liz Truss, one would love to know, and never will, what the privately astringent Queen Elizabeth thought about this particular arc of history. I mean, who knows, but I think we all thought it, right? I mean, Churchill and then Johnson and Truss. So over, over to you, Charles. Um, and indeed, uh, I have to say, Tina, just as, you were, um, just as you were speaking right now, the news has hit that uh, um, Liz Truss will be stepping down and a leadership yeah. election is going to be, uh, is going to be um, uh, pursued in the next week. She's oh, come to an agreement with Sir Graham Brady uh, and the 1922 uh, to committee. Um, so, it's, really, yeah. it's really stunning and it's actually horrible. And I'm sad for my gender that it ended this way for Liz Truss. I mean, really, it, it's embarrassing uh, and, and for the country. Uh, and 
deeply troubling. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, after all is said and done, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. Um, and, um, you know, it appears at, at this point that, that the now King Charles III has got quite a lot of, uh, of public support. Um, heaven knows he's had a, a better seven weeks, clearly, than, than uh, the prime minister has. Um, and clearly, nobody has had as much prep time for their job um, as he has. But how do you see the, you know, the Carolian age um, now, now getting off to a start? Well, the irony for Prince Charles, King Charles, I must say now, uh, is that though he's waited all of this time for his role, and you know he's he's been in the ante room of his destiny now for you know forty years certainly. Um, you know it was agony for him many many years when you know in his forties and fifties to him to wake keep waiting and being the man you know in the shadows the the, the you know the understudy etc. And even the last two years of the Queen's life I think was pretty tough for him because he was sort of she was ailing and he he never knew when he'd be called on to step in and it was it was a really hard i think couple of years but nonetheless the moment he steps in turns out to be in this magical way the perfect time because you know one thing we do know about prince charles for all of the travails with diana and you know the the, the fact that we sort of know so much about what he thinks you know he really is a true leader in the environmental and, and climate change space you know i mean he for years, uh, he was mocked as being a, quote, crank for his uh, passionate espousing of organic farming and of, you know, uh, no plastic and, you know, all of these things that, that we now sort of take for granted, essentially, as the critical things that have to be addressed. He was talking about it years before anybody else. Uh, I mean, even his own family would, would make fun of him, you know. And so really, he now is a genuine authority in this place. So he doesn't really, people will go, well, he can't talk about those things now. He's king. Yes, he can. He does not have to actually uh, play this role exactly as his mother did. Clearly, he cannot campaign or make political statements. I mean, he can't show up, at, at, you, know, at, 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 you know, and start talking about, you know, energy prices or whatever. He can't do that. But what he can do is uh, be a great convening monarch uh, in these areas that he cares about, which are, uh, uh, you know, disadvantaged uh, young people, um, which he's done an enormous amount to help with his Prince's Trust charity, uh, arts and culture, which he cares tremendously about, and of course, above all, uh, climate change. So actually, you know, there's a lot that Charles cares about that everybody else cares about too. And I think that he will be uh, able to show and already has shown a little more emotion than the Queen showed. I think for Charles, the inscrutable face doesn't really work, but at the same time, he doesn't have to go too far in the other direction and start emoting on every talk show. But he does, he can. I mean, when he spoke about his mother's death, he showed his grief. And uh, it was very moving, I thought, actually, that he did. So there's quite a lot of emotion in Charles, and I think that uh, it'll resonate, as a matter of fact. Um, we know that he was advised by the government not to go to the COP meeting uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh. I personally think he should have been able to go to that. I think there's nothing wrong with Charles, who really is the leader in that space, going and 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 making a very moving and passionate speech about you know the fate of the planet and how it has to be protected. I don't think that that should be regarded as a political topic for Charles. But you know he he obviously wanted to be 
absolutely uh, rigorous and uh, in observing uh, what the government wanted. But I think he sort of had the last laugh on that, actually. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he did end up going. Even if he doesn't, we know what he thinks. And that essentially, in this instance, I think is, is a good thing for Charles. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, in a sense, actually, all of this time leading up, you know, all of this time in the as the heir apparent, um, was not used poorly in the sense that even if he does have to pull back from overtly political statements or that which was perceived to potentially be overtly political statements, he laid the groundwork. Everybody knows he had these prescient views on things like climate change, on organic agriculture and whatnot. And even if he is quieter now, that foundation is, is there and underpins his leadership. But, you know... Another thing too, Kevin, which is just to say is that, you know, he's a great statesman at this point. Um, you know, he's met everybody. I mean, when you think about it, Charles, from cradle to now, has always been, you know, marinated in these affairs of state. I mean, from the age of 21, he was, you know, traveling the world, you know, always meeting. And so now he, he knows many uh, leaders, you know, uh, uh, parents and, and families and, and, and you know, and, and he knows and he's met with, off the record, all of these people. And we saw in the reception that he hosted at Buckingham Palace uh, for the Queen's, you know, funeral, who else could have convened all those world leaders? Who else could get the Emperor of Japan to travel in a bus? I mean, you know, <laughs> they were all falling over themselves to be included in the Buckingham Palace reception. You know, Macron and I mean, all of them, they just right. wanted to be there. And I don't think anyone else could have convened that group. And they do have a respect for Prince for, for King Charles. So I think it's actually kind of a rather amazing thing we're seeing, actually, which is uh, a great kickoff to the uh, Carolean age. So I have to ask you this, though, because it strikes me that for a lot of young people, particularly in Britain, um, they weren't around at the time of all the travails of Diana and certainly her tragic death. Um, but a lot of people's perception uh, of the monarchy and of the individuals who are in the royal family is now shaped by the popular Netflix show, The Crown. Um, I mean, we all binge it, the weekend it drops, right? Really? Um, but it occurs to me that it is about to pick up at the worst possible moment for Charles, uh, that the new season is essentially gonna cover the disillusion of that, uh, of that marriage that really cast him as the bad guy, as well as the now queen consort Camilla, then Camilla Parker Bowles. Um, so is the, is the palace concerned uh, about the impact of this, of this show as they're trying to launch this new, uh, this new uh, reign? They're very, very concerned. Season five and season six are something that they all dread very much. And actually you're seeing now daily uh, a kind of assault on the show, essentially, of saying people coming out. I mean, Judy Dench just wrote a letter to the Times saying, you know, how cruel um, 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 it was. It is, it is to do this series now, that, this, that it's too close to their real lives, these people. Uh, you have John Major, the former prime minister, very, very angry that uh, uh, apparently, and I haven't, you know, we haven't seen it yet, so it's also in some ways obviously unfair till people have seen it, but I gather that in the show, and John Major certainly has heard this, there's a scene in which Charles is essentially kind of asking him to persuade the queen to abdicate and 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 you know almost plotting it seems for that and i i i i've never heard that and i i mean you know john major absolutely rubbished it and said this is absolute you know fallacy and and so there's a real uh campaign to have a disclaimer at the beginning saying this is 
not fact, you know. Uh, it's hard for them because they can't, you can't really promote a counter narrative to something that has such a powerful hold of people's imaginations because it's frankly so well done, right? I mean, it, as you say, we all binge it. It's a wonderful show. I mean, it's gripping, it's fabulous. It's so well done. The acting is 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 sublime. I mean, the last series, the uh, Emma Corrin who played Diana was absolutely perfect. I, mean, I met Diana, on, you know, many times, and I it was a flawless rendition of Diana. We don't know what uh, uh, the new Diana casting is is going to be for her later years, but it's very very tough, and I think particularly uh, a source of trepidation for Camilla, the now queen consort, because. For 17 years now, she's been married to Charles. I mean, she's now been married to Charles longer than Diana was. She's been absolutely stalwart, stoic, discreet, uh, hardworking, done her duty, and, and really won back, well, won for the first time, you know, the, the esteem of the public. She's popular now. She really is. I mean, she's never going to be like a Diana, but she's respected and she's popular. If she's shown as the sort of, um, you know, frankly, you know, as, as Diana said, the third person in the marriage, the person who caused, uh, you know, the beautiful uh, heartbroken princess, uh, all of this pain, a whole generation who weren't even alive. I mean, think about it. It's 25 years since Diana died. So there's a whole generation now that there weren't even around when Diana was, the Diana story was playing out or were just children. So that's, that's very tough for them. And, um, you know, it, it does raise the question about how close you can come to somebody's life when they're around, they're alive, and they, you know, it's it's not as they remember it. So as I as I read your book, you know, talking about television shows, it was when I was reading your book, I have to say that the show that came to mind more than The Crown was actually the HBO show Succession, um, oh. because not that there was ever any question of who was going to ultimately, mean, but but this notion that we're, we're kind of watching this family and its travails. It's kind of like the Anna Karenina thing, right? All happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And we saw that being played out in a very public way, some of which was done by them themselves, right? The cultivating of the media and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but that there was, I think, sometimes a misunderstanding that the queen was not only mother and grandmother, et cetera, but she was also the CEO of this institution that she had a responsibility to perpetuate. And um, that there were in, in moments where, you know, Harry can't get a, can't get a meeting with his grandmother um, when he's trying to negotiate his stepping back, she needed to act as CEO. When it was time to cut off Andrew after, his, after the revelations of him, um, you know, with Jeffrey Epstein, um, she had to act as CEO and then later on acted as mother by essentially paying off um, or covering the uh, the settlement in, in, in a sense. But talk about this notion of, you know, head of the firm, as the family itself calls the institution um, and duties as a, you know, as a as a family member. Well, I mean, of course, the, the, the fascination of writing this uh, saga of, of the House of Windsor is that on the one hand, you have the 1,000-year-old institution, the monarchy, but it's held up on the frail shoulders, of course, of fallible people. You know, I mean, the Queen, in some ways, it's been very challenging for her family that the Queen was so darn impeccable for 70 years. How could anybody else uh, live up to that? I mean, the others are simply fallible people who have, you know, love affairs and, and divorces and problems and issues with money. And, you know, they are 
far more uh, sort of vulnerable in a sense, they, they, you know, to, to, the, to media scrutiny. And of course, the media age itself has changed. When the Queen took over, she, was, she took over in the era of deference, when, when monarchy was written about in a very sort of polite way. And of course, we get all the way along, and now it's just crazy TikTok memes and, you know, coverage 24-7, and they turn into these celebrity fodder. I mean, the Daily Mail online, I mean, it's just astounding. I think there were nine Meghan Markle stories yesterday. But um, so it's, 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 it's a challenge. But the Queen, most of the time, uh, got it right uh, with her family. And, uh, you know, Philip, of course, was extremely important. I mean, she, he was the sort of the family enforcer. He was the one who she kind of turned to, you deal with it, Philip, you know, and he did. Uh, when she lost Philip, it really became for her at the end very difficult because, you know, as she got older, you know, she it's so hard sometimes for her to separate her feelings as a mother and a grandmother uh, from her necessity of her of her uh, sovereign duties. But, you know, frankly, the crown always won. The crown always won. The sovereign duties, or if there was a real choice, as there was with Andrew or there was with Megxit, she, you know, she would have to, she always, in the end, protected the crown. Um, I mean, the only time, I mean, when we talked about Diana not getting it right at the time of uh, Diana's death, one reason she didn't, quote, get it right was because she was being a grandmother in Balmoral. You know, her, her two grandsons had lost their mother in the most horrific circumstances, and, and it was absolutely traumatic. She was isolated with her family there. She was really being a grandmother at that time. And so, yes, she delayed, you know, too long for public uh, appetite, you know, coming back to London. But that meant she had to you know, wrench herself away, essentially, and come down and behave as the sovereign. And she did in the end. But, you know, you saw that moment as being the conflict of being the mother and the sovereign. Similarly, actually, with Megxit, which was, you know, as painful for her in a way, um, you know, perhaps more so than, uh, than it was for, for Prince Harry, because she, she adored Prince Harry. I mean, you know, he's right about that. You know, she always loved Harry. He was fun. She adored him, you know, because the boys had lost their mother so young. Uh, you know, she was a very involved grandmother. And yet uh, she could not say yes to the Sussexes about what they actually wanted, which was to essentially be part-time royals, to be royals when they wanted to be royals, and entertainment, uh, um, you know, multimillionaires when they weren't. She, it, it could not be reconciled. I mean, uh, perhaps it could have been handled more imaginatively, but ultimately the outcome had to really be the same, which is as Philip, you know, put it, and and had on other occasions when other members of the family wanted also to be uh, off, kind of leveraging their essentially their brand of monarchy was you're in or you're out. In the same way in politics, I mean, you really can't be coining money in and taking money and so on when you are actually supposed to be doing public service. It's just very hard to reconcile. So, I mean, the way it was handled by them was, you know, was very impulsive. But the Queen, at the end of the day, she had to sort of stand by the monarchy, even though it meant that they left. And there was this very critical moment. I mean, when, when Harry said on the Oprah interview, you know, he blamed uh, the kind of grey men essentially around the Queen. And people love to kind of talk about the grey men. There is a deep state, it's true, at Buckingham Palace, layers upon layers, obviously, of turf-protecting courtiers. That That is still true. However, uh, he was being naive when he said, you know, the Queen, his grandmother, had he'd arranged to have go to Balmoral, to Sandringham, 
uh, you know, in uh, when, when these discussions were happening at the beginning of 2020. And he, you know, he was going to go to Sandringham in January, talk to his grandmother, have tea with her. And then her private secretary, Edward Young, stepped in and, and all of a sudden it was, oh, the Queen's diary is too full and it was cancelled. Well, he's being naive because one of the uh, close people there said to me, the children and grandchildren always knew that there was two uh, versions of the Queen. You know, if you were going to see your granny, your mother, to talk about issues of your life, your thing, you know, your private relationships, she was absolutely warm and cozy and, you know, come and see me, have tea, you know, have fun. If you were going to talk to her about anything that impacted the public nature of monarchy, you were going to find that, the, you know, she was at a long table with her private secretaries, your private secretaries, notebooks, you know, minutes taken. I mean, she was the CEO. And that's what Harry found, of course, that when he did go to what then was called the Sandringham Summit, it was all these private secretaries. It was the queen at the head of the of the table. And people who think that it was sort of then run by the deep state, actually, that's not true. I mean, as I found in my reporting, the queen was very much in the chair in that meeting. And she said, no, I mean, it was the worst deal anyone could imagine. Basically, Harry got nothing that he asked for. Nothing. I mean, you know, they had to give up, uh, you know, pay back the money on Frogmore House. They had to, you know, they, they he had to lose his military patronages, uh, which was very painful for Harry. And, and I think myself was something that, you know, perhaps he could have been left with, given how well he served in Afghanistan and, and how bravely and what a great soldier he was. But again, you're in or you're out. You don't get those patronages if you're not a public servant, which is what you know, being a working royal, as it's called, is. It was a very painful moment, I think, for her too. And um, I think it's sad that it couldn't have been better resolved before her death. It was a painful last year for her to have to deal with this sort of unhappiness and vocal unhappiness of the Sussexes. You know, that's a perfect segue, though, to um, what I wanted to ask you next, because for the end of the book, or at the very end of the book, actually, you write, while we celebrate the mightiness of Elizabeth II's allegiance to a life of service, we should acknowledge that an antiquated version of monarchy must now pass into history. So I'm wondering, what do you think the, um, what do you think that means in terms of what this institution is likely to look like? Because I'm struck by two things. One is that, um, and we've already heard to some degree about Charles uh, sort of having a more stripped down um, uh, uh, coronation um, in May of, of next year. But after watching what we did um, in in September, you know, you and you mentioned it at the top of the call, um, this absolutely precision display that nobody else in the world can do but the Brits, and that you have this sort of martial display, but it doesn't have this kind of same military overtones as militaries marching down the streets in Moscow or Beijing or in Pyongyang, right? Um, and and it was how they pulled it off is just uh, is just extraordinary, but. That is also what we, the world, expect um, uh, out of it. And they don't do that, then you know it's kind of like they're just they're just one of these minor monarchies uh, elsewhere in Europe. As an example, um, this is an industry for for the United Kingdom as it is in a sense. But the second element is going to what you were talking about earlier: that you're either in or you're out. And if the king is now and the, and, and the Prince of Wales are going to strip this thing down to a more streamlined operation, 
it, it begs the question of what happens to these other, now the minor royals, I guess, if you would call them, because if they have to go out and earn their own living, in a sense, and yet everybody who wants them wants them because there's that, there's that star power and that proximity to, to the crown, and that's what people want to monetize in a way. How do they balance that without them, you know, becoming just entertainment fodder? I think it's very, very difficult. In fairness to those minor roles, I mean, I do think it's very difficult. It only really works if it's happened from the get-go, so they have no expectations of it. Um, you know, Princess Anne's two children, she very shrewdly, and typical of Princess Anne, who I adore, she's, she's uh, you know, she's such a kind of pragmatic, smart, you know, beautiful woman. It's extraordinary. She basically said from the beginning, I don't want my children to be princes and princesses. I don't want them to be HRH. And they're not. You know, I mean, they've had actually uh, a pretty successful private time. You know, Zara is a very successful equestrian and Olympic rider. And her husband, you know, is a former rugby star. Uh, you know, he's actually now, though, uh, just accepted to do uh, take part in the Britain's most uh, popular reality show. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Right. And so, you know, he's doing that and he's going to be paid one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for doing it, probably. So that's a question about what do we think about that? Um, and Peter Phillips, you know, the, the, the brother, you know, he's a business guy. And I mean, he's, yeah, he, he's, he's, it seems able to negotiate all of that, but it depends on the kind of life you lead. I mean, basically the only way essentially for them to have these successful private lives, if they, if they really become rather low key business people, which is what happens a lot in, 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 in Europe, if they are more flamboyant and they want to be, um, out there in the public eye, you know, that immediately starts to raise the question of leveraging the brand again. And, you know, the press are just going to kill them for it. I mean, they have to recognize it's not simply the rules of monarchy. It's also the media. You know, you're going to have to face the fact that they'll never be off your case. They're never going to be off your case. So it's very tough, actually, for them. I mean, they want to earn. They want to go out and earn. Most of them haven't really been trained to do much. Um, and so what are they going to do, you know? Um, uh, it's actually better, though, that they are genuinely out, genuinely sort of in the world of whatever they want to be in, sports, business, real estate, whatever they want to do. It's better that they do that as out. Otherwise, you have this kind of nefarious thing of them being sort of, it's like what got Prince Andrew into all of this trouble, essentially, never had a feeling he had enough money, even though many would feel he had plenty of money. But, I mean, in, in terms of the people that they mixed with, uh, you know, he always felt he didn't have enough money and nor did his wife. And the same thing actually with Prince Michael of Kent, the Queen's cousin. I mean, he recently got into trouble for sort of brokering, you know, deals with uh, people who were considered inappropriate or whatever. So very difficult. And um, it hasn't it hasn't been properly worked out. And I don't know that the palace, uh, I don't think that really Charles can ever really understand that because, you know, they, they think they do. But if you have been raised from the cradle to be royal, it's not necessarily going to mean you have the best, smartest uh, sort of PR perspective on things. So at the risk of a, of a record scratch sort of turn here, um, I, I, I want to I can't have you on here and not turn to the media and journalism um, uh, more specifically. So. Um, I think for those in the audience who are perhaps less familiar with your, your background, it is worth reminding people um, that you became editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair magazine at the age of 31. 
entrusted um, with this storied brand that was trying to be revived by Simon Newhouse, who was running uh, Condé Nast and owned Condé Nast at the time. Um, and you became editor-in-chief of Tatler uh, at the age of 25. I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, the magazine world at the time and what it was that you saw. What, what did you see that you were going to be able to bring to these kind of storied titles and be, and be given that responsibility and that, you know, and that your bosses um, saw in you um, and entrusted you with these, with these titles. It's a fascinating mm -hmm. story. Well, I mean, Tatler was just the most incredible romp for me. You know, uh, they, they had, uh, it was bought, it was a very old storied title, a 270 year old title um, that had sort of degenerated into being a kind of sad little Chinese sheet. And it was bought by a real estate uh, guy who sort of wanted to break into magazine media and turn into a sort of a proper magazine. So he he asked every sort of journalist of any note in London if they wanted to edit it, and they all turned him down. So then he thought, well, I better go to youth. <laughs> and I had been writing uh, quite often on topics that were sort of rather in Tatler's realm. And so he took a risk on me, which for which I'll always be very grateful. I knew nothing when I took it over. But one of the things that I learned as a maxim is if you don't have a budget, get yourself a point of view, right? Because, I mean, our budget was £10,000 a year. I hired, you know, essentially my friends, which I guess everybody does uh, at the beginning of their career. I hired my friends and they all turned out to be very, very good. In fact, my sort of young intern ended up being, you know, chairman of Condé Nast. He's now chairman of the Victorian Albert Museum. And I mean, you know, others there uh, turn into major figures in journalism. So I actually had a good uh, sort of base of, of, of very talented sort of young Turks, if you like. And I wanted to bring out, I, I knew immediately that the way to go in, you know, in, at that moment when Mrs. Thatcher had just taken over was to, was irreverence. You know, it was my, what, what I, you know, my own nature to be irreverent as a writer and as a, as a, as a sort of satiric eye, if you like. So I turned Tatler into very much a, a very irreverent look at high society, mixing taking it away from the old fashioned uh, sort of hunting, shooting and fishing mandate to a far more irreverent, you know, um, cafe society, a combination of glamour uh, as well as class. And it was a very, very fun magazine. And it, and, and it still is, actually. I mean, that, the, the personality of Tatler was so strong that it the DNA that was implanted there is still very much present. And the new editor, I think, is particularly good and, and sort of very much following our our way. Um, Vanity Fair, of course, was a uh, bought by was started by Conan Ask because at the end of my Tatler spell, this real estate uh, guy sold it to to Conan Ask. So that's how I came into their ken, as it were, in the English company. They launched Vanity Fair in New York. It was in in eighty three. It was an instant dreadful belly flop. You know, they they had a lot of hype. <laughs> and then it fell on its face and was totally mocked as a terrible sort of turkey. They put in another editor very quickly. They found, you know, they fired the founding editor. They put another editor in who was plucked from the sort of old guard of Condé Nast as a caretaker editor. And then they basically signed Newhouse, who was really, a, he was wonderful. I mean, the sense that he took risks on people and, he, you know, he turned to me and he said, look, you did this with Tatler. Why don't you come to New York? So a long story how I ended up you know, getting to that point with him. But um, my goal, my my task was, you know, you've got sort of six months. I mean, either we fold it or we give it a last shot. And uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, you asked about uh, how or whatever. I mean, I did have a vision. And um, 
you know, I, I loved magazines. I, I, I was very good at, at finding, you know, I had a great story sense uh, and a sense of the zeitgeist, which has always been something I, you know, kind of was able to resonate with. And so I turned the Vanity Fair into this uh, sort of the mirror of the Reagan age, as it were, the, the, and, and, and basically started the whole kind of, I'm afraid, <laughs> celebrity journalism of that era combined with uh, very, very strong narratives, reporting narratives. I mean, the, the, the whole concept of Vanity Fair was, uh, you know, glamorous uh, package and very sort of, uh, you know, mu muscular content, if you like, in, in reporting and storytelling and great photography. So, uh, you know, I was able to build that magazine back from being, you know, we'd had 25 pages of advertising when we started. And by the time I left, I mean, we had 250 pages. It was, it was, it became a very um, a successful indeed, sort of the flagship, if you like, of, of Conan Ask by the time I left. And it, yeah, As a similar, a similar ascent in terms of circulation, right? So, yes, but the, 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 yes, the, the only thing uh, better than uh, having a point of view is having a point of view with the budget um, that you would, you would hope for. And it seemed like you used that, you wielded that well. Um, I, got, and, I got that with Vanity Fair. That was what was the joy of Vanity Fair. It was, okay, you've got more than a point of view. Now you have a budget. Now you can actually pay for the writers, you know, and we, we, um, we went from uh, about 200,000 circulation to um, 1.2 million. Yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a, a great commercial success. And having phenomenal writers, like you say, who could devote themselves, had the time and the budget to be able to devote themselves to some serious long-form journalism. You had like this mix that you were talking about of, of celebrity, celebrity journal, obviously the, the absolutely phenomenal photography that Annie Leibovitz and Herb Ritz and Richard Avedon yes. and others brought to, the, brought to the table, but also serious long form journalism um, that actually wound up getting optioned for films in many, uh, many and, and, and the like. Um, and of course, that's what I wanted. You know, it was doing that after eight years that made Cy Newhouse then say, okay, I've got this other problem now, which is the New Yorker. <laughs> And right, so he, go to, and, and that was an even bigger responsibility in a way. You were only the fourth editor in the history of the most, one of the most storied magazine titles uh, in, in, in the world, and, and you didn't have the, the crutch, if you will, of phenomenal photography, right? It was text heavy. Um, how did you then make that transition? Well, again, I, I really, uh, the first one he talked to me about it, I didn't really see myself as editor of that magazine until I went into the libraries and I looked at the very, very early rendition of The New Yorker in the 30s, 20s and 30s. And I saw that actually it was quite a different magazine from what it had become in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it had much more vitality. Uh, it had a range of short and long pieces instead of all great big long impenetrable pieces. It had tremendous artwork, you know, full page cartoons by people like Charles Adams and Peter Arno. And I thought, my God, I, I could do this again. I could actually do the, the new version of this. And that's what I did. I brought visuals into the magazine. I brought uh, a whole raft of incredible artists, such as Edward Ed Sorrell and, and uh, Art Spiegelman, uh, who you know was very famous for his mouse cartoon uh, um, uh, book. Uh, I, I had a female cartoon editor who was actually Art's wife, who was absolutely uh, uh, not an illustrations editor. Um, I gave the cartoonists free reign, created a whole issue for them, and and uh, 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 really get, celebrated the cartoonists in a big way. I brought Richard Avedon as the very first uh, staff photographer to the New Yorker. And most of all, I actually 
replaced uh, a whole bunch of riders. I mean, look, I had to I had to clear the stables essentially of of forty or fifty of the old guard, keep the best like the great Roger Angel and John Updike and Lillian Ross, and then bring in the new ones. And I hired you know David Remnick, I hired Jeffrey Tubin, I hired Jane Mayer, I hired um, uh, Ken Letter. I had you know so I brought in these great writers and. They're still there to this day. I mean, again, we achieved something that was a new template for a reimagined New Yorker that would be, you know, essentially we woke up the Sleeping Beauty. And um, I'll always be very proud of the fact that we did save the New Yorker with that uh, very difficult and challenging first few years. Right. I mean, it seems to me that that's a, you know, budget point of view um, and, and, and that, that Nat for being able to identify the zeitgeist that we were talking about earlier are all absolutely critical. I think people forget when you started Talk Magazine um, and you had this eye for for talent and your original political columnists uh, were Jake Tapper and Tucker Carlson. Now, half of our audience will probably thank you for that and half of our audience will probably un be unforgiven for that. But um, yeah, how, yeah how but, it, but, but it was a pretty good, it was pretty good spotting in both of them. I mean, they're, they're actually both really good writers. Yeah, but what mm. what happened ultimately? I mean, I think you know you talked about the weight of these magazines as the advertising pages built up, and there was almost this blur. I mean, obviously the photographers that you hired were did beautiful work, but the advertising and the types of advertisers that you had in there did almost artistic work them uh, themselves. The paper stock was heavy. These magazines were were luxury goods, and it's why everybody up and down Park Avenue here and um, and and elsewhere uh, in this city it was it was must read. And um, I feel like in many ways those that not, not just to talk, pick on Vanity Fair, but I mean just in general that the, this era has has passed. I mean, there's obviously the iconic pictures of, of you and your late husband sitting in the uh, in the diner every morning and you had every newspaper in the world stacked up there and you had all the magazines stacked up there. Now we see you just with the newspaper. Like, what happened to the <laughs> now magazine? I there, now I sit there with my phone. Um, <laughs> it's all changed. I mean, you know, the digital disruption um, uh, changed everything and everything has become disaggregated. And, you know, magazines really were an art form of words, pictures, paper, uh, headlines, um, glossy stock, but very expensive to produce, uh, very expensive to distribute. And now the content, of course, has become completely disaggregated. Uh, I mean, to be honest, magazine junkie though I am, I really, you know, read very few magazines. I, I read on my phone and like everybody else. And I miss that. But we have to recognize that the important thing is the wine in the bottles, not the bottles, right? I mean, at the end of the day, much though I miss, I miss the glory of that. You have to also recognize that that's not how people are consuming content most of the time. I mean, I think there will always be a role for the luxury product uh, magazine that is a kind of lovely tactile thing to have on your coffee table. But most of the magazines, uh, uh, you know, we, we used to read are actually fading out. And uh, particularly here, not so much in England. I mean, the magazines in England, there's still a newsstand culture, which there really isn't here, except at airports. So, you know, you have to then think, okay, and that's why I started the Daily Beast, because that uh, was a digital online uh, news uh, site. Uh, and at first I thought I'm not going to ever be that editor. You know, I, I'm so much a magazine craft person. 
but I did find there's a lot of excitement in the digital things you can do in the digital that you couldn't do. I mean, I, I am I'm the world's most impatient person, so you know, the the, the instant gratification of news breaks like well, this trust is going right. Get on the phone, know who to call, know who to text. Like, can you do this piece by you know in three hours? And people did because I had so much. Uh, such a rolodex of writers that I was able to persuade people to do things fast, and it became it was very very good. I mean, we won news side of the of the year uh, uh, twice actually. I think it's even harder. I mean, I did that in two thousand and eight when home pages essentially were still of note and still of desire, if you like. And actually, I was proudest almost of the design of the Daily Beast, which was a beautiful looking site actually. But of course now, I mean, I never go to home pages actually, so it's now completely disaggregated now. It's just about the pieces, <clears throat> and um, okay, so that's what it is. But you've then got to do the best pieces, you know. And I think newsletters have become a very um, appealing way to get uh, better quality writing and news. I mean, I, I subscribe to a lot of different newsletters. One I like very much actually is in England. It's called Tortoise, and it's 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 very well written. It's just I was just reading it for. Um, uh, for all the Liz Trust stuff this morning. Um, so I have constant news alerts coming in and all of these newsletters. And of course, I follow people on social media. So um, the whole question now is how do we fund it, right? That's that's the million dollar question. Uh, and actually, <clears throat> in memory of my husband, I've launched uh, a, a fund uh, in his name, the Sir Harry Evans uh, Memorial Fund, which <clears throat> um, underwrites uh, an annual investigative journalism fellowship for a young talent who will, because I've partnered with Reuters and, and David Thompson, it is uh, that this, the winner is going to embed in um, the Reuters newsroom so that we actually can underwrite uh, this, this new journalist uh, talent. And we're also going to do an annual convening, the first of which is uh, the first summit on investigative journalism is going to be next May. It's called Truth Tellers, and I'm very excited about it. But the, the reason I'm bringing it up actually is because I just read. I mean, we'll announce the new fellow on Monday, but uh, the, the 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 bundle of, of candidates was so extraordinary. It was really heartening. I mean, it's a global fellowship in journalism, so we had entries from Eastern Europe and and China and um, Pakistan and and I mean, brilliant <clears throat> journalists who are Africa. I mean, doing amazing work. And I'm thinking, how do these young people? You know, how, how are they producing this work? And a lot of them are simply doing it out of passion. They, they, they try to find funding from nonprofits and then, uh, or part, and, they, and many of them also are, are great sort of data journalists and they partner them with storytellers. But there's a whole new way of finding uh, support for, for journalism. But all of them in their entries talked about their uh, lack of community, that they felt they wanted the fellowship because they wanted to be actually in the Reuters newsroom. They wanted to be mentored. They wanted to have colleagues. They wanted to have help, essentially, in in in, in being molded. I mean, I, I spent time with my writers all the time, making their material better, you know, telling them what I thought they should write rather than something else, with how I felt they would tell the story better. That's what they miss. They miss they miss the editors and they miss uh, uh, they miss the collegial culture of a news organization. So that's one of the things that I think we need to really think about is how else can we create networks of talent uh, with people to support those networks so that the 
essential work of investigative journalism uh, continues because without it, we'd all still be getting blood samples from Theranos, right? I mean, Theranos, I mean, you know, without that extraordinary investigation done by the Wall Street Journal, uh, um, you know, without so many. I mean, my husband's was, you know, the thalidomide investigation where he actually got compensation for the people who'd been utterly kicked to the curb, having been given this appalling drug. So we need journalism uh, and we must find ways to, new ways to support it. So we, we only have a couple minutes left, but I, I, you know, I need to ask you this. When you look back in the rear view mirror at what you built at Vanity Fair and the, and the, and the foundation then that Graydon Carter then ran with um, after that, but this really this, you know, it, it feels like before that, a lot of these elements were much more siloed, right? Um, politics and business and, um, you know, celebrity and entertainment and society and, and so on, foreign policy. Um, and then all of a sudden they come into this combustible mix. Everything is is, is mixed up to Vanity Fair becomes this huge brand. I know Braden moved um, a lot of this uh, further down the down the road, but you know, the Oscar party and the White House Correspondents Party and so on. And it really, I think, gave rise to this notion that, you know, Washington is like Hollywood for ugly people or whatever the <laughs> the old saying is in, in, in a way. But do you when you look today, at the polarization in our in our society, and this, and that so many of our political figures, when they go on TV or simply you know auditioning for their post congressional job at Fox or at MSNBC or whatever end of the political spectrum they are on, that that we unintentionally kind of created this 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 world where people have to be what they are not in a sense, and um, it takes them away from what their core duty is running a company or, you know, trying to actually legislate and advance the country's agenda in, in, in a sense, that, that celebrity trumps all. Well, I mean, I think, honestly, to go back to our first conversation, they need to take, they need to look at how Queen Elizabeth II handled it as, as a CEO. The temptation not to take the long view, but to sort of jump into the mix and sort of be an out there celebrity is pretty deadly, I think. Uh, unless you understand how to manage that, right? I mean, you you know, it's about giving people, it's it's not unlike what Prince Charles faces, you know? I mean, you have to give them enough to make sure you your company is not a faceless entity, but not to the point that you forget that your real role is to run that company. And in terms of what I sort of did in journalism, I mean, you know, in terms of the mix, as it were, that, that I brought to say Vanity Fair, uh, you know, of, of, of Hollywood and politics, there was one thread running through it, frankly, which was excellence, right? If you're going to do an interview with uh, an actor, let it be as good in its way as an interview with, uh, uh, you know, someone in the, in, in the cabinet. It's all about standards, you know. So the important thing is to bring those standards to whatever you're writing about, whether it's Hollywood or business or politics. You, you just want to do excellent work and the work that's accurate, work that uh, uh, has integrity and, and is rigorous. I didn't always get that right by any means, but I certainly strove for it. And, and when I was at The New Yorker, I really, it was thrilling to have that challenge all the time, which is like, does it meet the standard? Is this good enough to be there? And I don't know how many people essentially, because there is no budget and because things are so shrunk and, and staffs are so challenged, this, you know, always people are very understaffed everywhere. Uh, because of the budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts. 
they sometimes really, I think, mourn um, a culture of excellence. They want it. And um, I saw that so much in these young applications. They're longing for cultures of excellence. And that makes me hopeful because I think that desire is still very much there. And even though we've lived through this period of huge turbulent media disruption, I am sort of confident that other ways are going to be found to support excellence because that's really what we're all hungering for, although we don't know it sometimes. <laughs> so finally, uh, I want to end with where we began because I know you're a, you're a phenomenal multitasker. So hopefully uh, you've had a chance to even reflect, even as you're talking here today, um, about what has just occurred. So in a sense, there's a there's a tragic story that has unfolded here uh, with Liz Truss, and she'll wind up being one of the shortest-lived prime ministers in, in 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 British history. But what does that tell you? What do you you know as 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 we look at Brexit, the potential departure long term of Scotland and even Northern Ireland, um, you know the, the the splitting of uh, the traditional constituents of the political parties, um, something's changing and. I just wonder what you think um, in your sort of initial reaction to the departure well, today. I mean, to be honest, I mean, my reaction to the departure of Liz Truss is this is the end epilogue to uh, lies, right? And this is why media is so important. The fact is the country was lied to in, in, in Brexit. It was lied. People were told, for instance, that if they voted for Brexit, all the funding would now go to the national health. It wasn't true. Promises were made to people that could not be kept. You know, we're seeing uh, Britain, you know, go from number four to number 11 in terms of its, you know, GDP, et cetera. I mean, it's a disaster, really, what's happened. And, and, and at core of that disaster is dishonest media, is, is, is when pol politicians can uh, promulgate uh, untruths and not have them uh, checked or, or, or and, and can see them, you know, uh, disseminated without check. It's very dangerous for the society itself. So then you wind up with a completely unqualified prime minister uh, who has also been sort of swept away by the very thing that, that was the problem in the first place, which is just the you know, cacophony of negative media and, and an inability to even uh, operate, essentially. So, I mean, I, I, I'm very keen on, on seeing the media piece got right, because I do believe that it's the great custodian of democracy and truth, and that the partisan era that we're in is because of the way the media now has, has split in everyone is in an echo chamber. So hopefully we're, we're seeing we're going to come out of this dark time, the dark ages, the media dark ages. <laughs> well, thank you for this. Uh, Tina Brown has been my guest today. Uh, her newest book is The Palace Papers, and uh, it is, as uh, as The Washington Post said, an addictive read. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, and I thank you for your time today. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Teneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at teneoinsights at teneo.com. See you next time.